I thought Christmas only comes once a year. Hello, my name is Will, and you're listening to Exploding Helicopters, still the only podcast in the world treating helicopter explosions as if they were cinema's most important moment. Now, after GoldenEye successfully relaunched the James Bond films, it didn't take long for the rot to set in. The World Is Not Enough may only have been Pierce Brosnan's third outing as 007, but the film was beset by the crass, smart, woeful comedy and the air of ridiculous that reached its nadir in Die Another Day and precipitated another reboot. Indeed, The World Is Not Enough has come to be seen as one of the very worst in the series, regularly ranking at the bottom of the best of Bond movies. But does The World Is Not Enough deserve this reputation? Or does it, as is my belief, contain some very interesting variations on the Bond formula? That's the question we're going to be looking at on this show, along with, of course, the Exploding Helicopter action. To help me do that, I'm joined by a James Bond aficionado and a man who can always be relied on to keep the British end up. My guest today is Joe Scaramanga. How you doing, Joe? I'm very well, thank you very much. Nice to be here. Now, you've been a, a long-time supporter of Exploding Helicopter, and uh, we don't have many of those, so uh, thanks, for, <laughs> <laughs> thanks, for, uh, thanks for making yourself available for this show. But we've been sort of talking on social media for years, but this is the, uh, the sort of very first time that we've actually spoken to each other in person. It is indeed, yeah. No, it's, it's an absolute pleasure. I, I've, as you say, I've been a, a massive fan of your, uh, your Twitter account for, for a number of years now. And it's, uh, it, I've always appreciated uh, a good chopper fireball. And it's, it's nice to meet fellow aficionados. And like you say, um, appreciation of, of action movies as a, as a genre as well. As you say, they, they often get belittled and there's a lot more going on than, than people think. Oh, for sure. And we are trying to, uh, to cast a light on uh, what we think is the sort of the greatest action movie trope obviously the exploding helicopter and it's good to uh, to be sort of talking to you in person especially because i know you are a uh, james bond fan and obviously your uh, internet nom de guerre is a homage to uh, to those films so uh, is scaramanga your favorite character and if not who is He's certainly up there. I mean, Man with the Golden Gun is certainly not one of my favourite films, but Christopher Lee is certainly one of my favourite actors of all time, and he's just absolutely marvellous in that. He um, There's a common thread with a lot of Bond movies, that the, the worst ones tend to have very good villains in them, and he's he's certainly up there. So what is then your uh, your favourite Bond film? It always it's on a Majesty's Secret Service. It's just it's just fantastic. It, it works as a standalone film. It works as a Bond movie. I know people have their issues with Lazenby, but a lot of those issues can be put down to post-production. I mean, he's he's dubbed for half the movie, which which doesn't help his performance at all. And Dinah Rigg is just absolutely fantastic. Easily my favourite Bond girl. And yeah, it's it's just absolutely marvelous. Even a poster of it in my front room. Well, I was gonna uh, I was gonna ask you kind of what is your uh biggest act of james bond fandom oh that's an interesting one i do have a um box of i would call it memorabilia the wife would call it junk that i've acquired (laughs) over the years that i um various odd bits i don't really go in for the sort of high-end collecting but i have things like branded razors and any magazine that has got Bond on the cover and things like that. Just odd little things that I think, you know, one day might be worth something. I think my probably the pride and joy in that is a is a completely mint condition Moonraker annual. Um, <laughs> so obviously it's aimed at kids. So it's it's really hard to find a, a nice clean version that hasn't been ripped and drawn all over. So that that's probably the pride and joy of that. What on earth is in a James Bond Moonraker annual? 
it's really good. There's, there's a lot of sort of behind the scenes stuff. There's stuff about the, um, the special effects and there's a sort of, you know, introduction to the characters and things like that. But it's aimed at kids. It's not like the later making mm. of books. It is just a, a kid's book about a, a space shuttle movie. So it's, it's really cool. Now, as regular listeners will know, I've chosen to dedicate my life to celebrating what I believe to be cinema's finest movie trope, exploding helicopters, obviously. But uh, I'm aware that not everyone is as interested in them as me. So, Joe, I wanted to ask you, do you enjoy helicopter explosions in film or do you need to make a shameful admission and admit you've never really thought about them too much? I must admit, I never really thought about them too much until I discovered your Twitter feed. And then <laughs> I discovered how, 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 um, how common they were. You know, I'm sure you're you're aware of the sort of fruit cart trope of the uh, 70s and 80s that every every car chase had to had to have a, <laughs> a car plowing through a fruit cart. And I think for a while, helicopter explosions replaced that. That every action film had to feature a, a, a helicopter explosion. And as you're the expert on that, you could probably tell me if that's true. Well, I have done some uh, research to sort of look at the frequency over the decades of exploding helicopters in movies. And, you know, there are some statistical limitations to my survey, but I don't see there isn't a huge amount of variation in the uh, sort of frequency of uh, exploding helicopters in, in movies uh, across the decades. And long may that uh, continue. But Absolutely. Uh, do you have any particular kind of favourite exploding helicopters? I know it's not a particularly well-loved film, but I think um, Die Hard 4, where he, uh, he, as Justin Long says, he kills a helicopter with a car, um, <laughs> was, was certainly at the time I really enjoyed. I, I, I think the film gets a rough ride, to be perfectly honest, certainly compared to the last one. But recent memory, that, that's one that's stuck in my mind as well. And uh, Stone Cold as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, simply because it, it was quite rare to see that kind of thing in a, in a straight-to-video movie. You know, not a particularly high-budget film, but they, they managed to get a, an exploding helicopter in it, which is quite impressive. And that particular exploding helicopter is so gratuitously exploitative. They just have mm -hmm. this, uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, uh, they, uh, a helicopter very conveniently uh, hovers outside <laughs> of the window of an office block whilst a motorbike comes crashing out of the window uh, into the helicopter. And yeah, it is just a completely gratuitous uh, helicopter explosion. And Ooh. the movie is all the better for it. But uh, I think it's probably time that we uh, got stuck into The World Is Not Enough. So let's see if Trailer Man can take us back to 1999, when the world was excitingly awaiting the new millennium and a new Bond film. As the countdown begins to the 21st century, it's good to know there is still one number you can always count on. Bond. Bond. Can't you just say hello like a normal person? Renard is behind this. He will die along with everyone in the city. We do not negotiate with terrorists. His only goal is chaos. I sent 009 to kill Renard. He put a bullet in his head. That bullet's still there. He feels no pain. He can push himself harder, longer than any normal man. No hard feelings, Mr. Bond. It appears that you have been beaten. Stop! Don't make 
The World Is Not Enough came out in 1999. It was the 19th or the 20th, if you include Never Say Never Again, James Bond film. The story starts with an all tycoon being murdered in the offices of MI6. Bond is sent to protect his daughter, Electra King. When Electra's life is threatened, 007 learns that a notorious KGB agent turned terrorist called Renard is behind the plot and is also attempting to steal a nuclear weapon. The film stars Pierce Brosnan, Judi Dench, Sophie Marceau as Electra, Robert Carlyle as Renard and everyone's favourite nuclear physicist, Denise Richards. It was directed by Michael Apted, who in a very long career made Gorky Park and Gorillas in the Mist, as well as making a number of highly acclaimed documentaries, including the 7-Up series. Reception was rather mixed for this film. On Rotten Tomatoes, the film has a 51% critical rating and a 49% audience rating, while IMDb users have it averaging 6.4. The legendary Roger Ebert said the film was a splendid comic thriller, exciting and graceful and endlessly inventive, while the Wall Street Journal wondered how much longer people would pay to see a walking, running, driving, diving, punning, smirking, swimming, skiing, shooting, parachuting corpse. But enough of all that. Joe, what's your view on the Pierce Brosnan Bond era and The World Is Not Enough? I was surprised, having rewatched it this week, how my opinion on it had changed quite dramatically. At the time, when it came out, I really enjoyed it. And for a long time, I thought it was it was Brosnan's best film. Having watched it again this week, I thought it was utterly dreadful. Um, <laughs> I really did. Because you were quite enthusiastic when I initially contacted you about this. So this is quite a uh, quite a change. It was weird because I couldn't actually remember the last time I'd seen it. And I, I realised that I really don't watch the Brosnan films anymore, except maybe Goldeneye. And from the, the first sequence in the, in the banker's office, I was, it's clunky. It's It looks cheap. It looks cheap mm. and ugly. And just the dialogue is dreadful. Pierce Brosnan is toe-curlingly bad in this. The way he delivers his one-liners is just, oh, you know, Sir Roger must be turning in his grave. It, uh, uh, the sound of Pierce Brosnan delivering lines <laughs> about checking a, the lady's figures and, and things like that. That's it a terrible was, line. And the plot is all over the shop. Once, once you start picking it apart, it, it just makes no sense at all. Well, I'm perhaps a little bit more positive about this movie. I'm not going to... You know, I, I'm going to have to muster a somewhat sort of limited defence of this film because I do think it is, you know, I do think it is very good in some ways, but it is a deeply schizophrenic movie. Um, schizophrenic is the word that I used for a long time to describe it when it came out. It's trying to do two different things. And yes. I think it does either of them particularly well. Yeah, I mean, because there are many things in this film and you've already alluded to some of them that are deeply terrible. There, there are some absolutely atrocious one-liners in here. The smut is it would have been embarrassing in you know Moore's 70s era pomp here just before the turn of the millennium it's inexplicable and embarrassing and yeah. the, the the sort of the naff gadgets are back with a vengeance um, mm -hmm. you know that said though that this for me does have some actually sort of quite radical and unique elements in in the plot here and there are some really interesting things going on with the uh, female characters in in this film which is often very rare in a bond film Yes, absolutely. I mean, with Sophie Marceau, you've, you've got probably the best actress since Dinah Rigg, you know, as, as, as your main Bond girl. 
and it, it seems weird to use the phrase bongo when you're talking about Sophie Marceau, but she's actually really good in it. And there are there are elements in it that that, that are good. She being probably the the biggest one. Had anyone else played that part, they they would have done really found it really difficult to find somebody else to play that part because she is for a Bond movie, she is quite complex. It's not a simple. I'm not sure if we can go into plot spoilers or not. Um, uh, yeah, but, we are a spoilerific podcast, so excellent. So just okay. fire away. You know, it isn't it isn't a simple switcheroo the the character doesn't just go from good to bad there is there is some complexity there and i liked at the time i liked the idea of having a character who gets does get under bond's skin and and makes him a bit more vulnerable which is almost a dry run for what they're doing now with with daniel craig yeah for sure because i mean i think for most of this film sophie marceau comes across as what appears to be a sort of typical damsel in distress but actually you know we learn through the film she's actually sort of the mastermind behind this particular drama and i think that's the first time that i can recall that a bond plot has thrown that type of curveball at the audience normally the villain who is normally the villain is the villain and and they're very clearly identified and signpost at the at the beginning of the film but that's not the case here no and i think if i remember rightly the the media were quite willing to play along as well and keep it a secret that the the media played up the fact that robert carlyle was the villain and there were i don't remember there being any hint that sophie marceau was in fact the villain but i think also that then gets thrown away too lightly at the end and it become it becomes a bit more the final act becomes a bit more standard they they almost don't have the balls to uh follow it up and follow through with it and in a way it's it's such a it's a bit of a sad ending to her character. Yeah, I would agree with that because that type of, as you say, the way that she has manipulated Bond up until that point and the fact that he then realises that he's being used in that way, that should be a moment that should have a lot more weight. You know, I think Brosnan is a good enough actor to, to, to sell that and to do that, but I think the trouble is he's been in a different gear for large parts of this film doing mm. these very ridiculous one-liners and i think the the sort of the writing and the tone of the film just don't really allow him to work with sophie marcel to kind of really you know sell those moments yeah absolutely i would agree with that i mean the the the, the face-off between brosnan and and marceau the, I, it's one of it's one of my favourite Brosnan moments when he, you know, he's got the gun to her head and that small little scene is one of the best moments of his Bond tenure. And the the it's the one one-liner I actually like in the film when she says, you, you couldn't kill me, you'd miss me. <laughs> and I never miss. It's brilliant. That's Fleming. That, that could have come from one mm. of the books. Yeah, it really reminded me of that moment in Doctor No where he, I can't remember the character's name, he kills that guy Yes, um, who's uh, coming to his, yes, you know, he's fired all his bullets and, um, you know, Bond just kills him in complete cold blood and just yeah. sort of says, well, you've had your six and then just sort of shoots him dead. And uh, as you say, yeah, a very Fleming-esque moment. There aren't enough moments like that in, this, in the series. And it's so frustrating to have a moment like that in a film that is so far removed from Fleming as well. As a fan, I'm not a massive fan of the novels, but as a, as a fan, you, you, it's moments like that that make, just make you sort of perk up a bit and go, oh, actually, maybe. And it, it's, I wonder if it's moments like that that made me think I liked this film more than I did. 
I mean, there are also some elements of the of the plot in this film, which I think are very interesting to look at in the light of the sort of the more recent Daniel Craig um, era Bond movies, because in this film there is, uh, you know, Bond is vulnerable in this film. He very early on, he's he's got an injury to his shoulder, which is actually there as an injury and something that causes him discomfort and pain throughout the whole of the movie and that is something which we haven't really seen in a Bond movie until the sort of Daniel Craig eras and there's also a sort of an increased uh, role um, for M in this movie Mm. and I think that helps also make the stakes in this movie feel much more uh, personal for Bond obviously he has the personal betrayal but here he also has to you know he has to set about rescuing his boss not just rescuing the world which you know obviously high stakes but can at times in the bond franchise feel a bit impersonal absolutely and as i say like you say they those elements now have become standard all the bond film all the craig bond films feature m much more prominently than just as here's here's your folder go off and do your mission um and then we'll catch you at the end up to it which of course they um they managed to crowbar in at the end here as well of m catching bond on the job um (laughs) so you know all all the craig films now m is a major character in the plot whether the plot requires it or not i think probably only skyfall is the one that actually requires Mm. m to be part of the plot and to be honest i'm now finding that particular trope quite tedious i thought Um, it got in the way inspector i thought M and Money Penny, yeah. they got in the way of yeah, the, of the climax of that movie. I, I didn't mind Money Penny so much. It makes more sense for Money Penny to be involved in the plot because she was uh, in Skyfall. She was a field agent, so it sort of makes more sense for her to be involved. I also like more involvement for Tanner as well. Tanner's a character that's been neglected by the series hugely, and until Rory Kinnear took over, he's only appeared I think three times before this period now and in the novels he's bond's only friend he's described as bond's only sort of personal friend so it's nice to see him involved as well but like you don't need m as well it's Mm. it's overloading the pudding but in this in this uh the water's not enough it was refreshing if it was a new idea and in some ways you're like why why haven't they done this before what it it seems such an obvious thing to do, but they've never got around to doing it um and again there is that personal connection between her and electra it's not just, oh, we've kidnapped him mm. because we want to get to Bond. There is an actual reason why she's become involved in the plot. Well, we've talked about some of the good, and I think we probably need to look at some of the bad in this particular movie. And while there is much that is good here, there's also a lot of stuff here in terms of gadgets and comedy that feels like some of the worst excesses of the uh, of the Bond series. And um, I've already mentioned this film feels schizophrenic to me. I think you you agreed earlier that that's the that's the way that it struck you as well. Yeah, absolutely. You, you, are you going to make me talk about John Cleese? Um, I think we, we need to address his uh, appearance in this film. Why don't you get it off your chest? It's just really sad, that scene, because obviously it's Desmond Llewellyn's last scene in a Bond movie. And his exit does still bring a lump to my throat because it was obvious that they were looking to replace him, even though, you know, he wasn't ill. He, di- he, he died in a, in a car accident. He didn't die of, you know, sort of old age or anything. But before that, you've just got this woeful sort of Basil Fawlty. Well, John Cleese doing John Cleese, basically. Mm. And why anyone thought he would be a good replacement for Desmond Llewellyn, I have no idea. 
it's hammy, it's over the top, it's the one-liners are dreadful, both from him and from uh, Brosnan as well. You know, you think back to the Q scenes in the in the Roger Moore era, and in the Connery ones as well. In fact, in some ways, the Connery ones are, are much funnier because the relationship is much harsher. Connery has, has no time for Q. Q clearly <laughs> has no respect for him whatsoever. And that sort of warmed a little bit in the Roger Moore era. And now it's almost like Brosnan and Llewellyn are like sort of, you know, cheeky uncle and, and cousin or nephew or something. And it's just really sad that Llewellyn's last appearance is, I don't want to say sullied, that sounds really harsh, but <laughs> it ruins it completely. Yes, because going back to this idea of, of schizophrenia, you go from really quite awful puns and slapstick into a very poignant moment with the series' uh, longest running actor. And yeah. you can't change gears like that. And of course, then that that's then followed by the scene where Bond is analysing the, the news footage and that. And he shows his first even though he's, he hasn't actually met her yet but he, he immediately shows some feelings towards Electra, and you're still trying to recover from what <laughs> the abomination of the last five minutes that scene almost gets the 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 order of the scenes is completely wrong because that you're not paying any attention to that mm. because you're either still upset about Desmond Llewellyn, or you're still angry about John Cleese. You're, you're not paying any attention to what's going on in that scene at all. Yeah, that kind of jumble of different sort of emotional beats that you are sort of talking about there. I, I think James Bond films are sort of notorious for being put together by committee. And I think mm. that sort of jumble of emotional beats is just evidence of that committee process. And there being clearly people involved in this who have very different visions for the type of Bond movie that they want to make. But, mm. uh, you know, we we also have, um, you know, we've talked about sort of John Cleese's appearance in this in this movie. We also have a couple of other sort of uh, cameos here and uh, bits Ooh. of uh, stunt casting. Um, so we have Robbie Coltrane turning as Zukowski, a, a character we first met in Goldeneye. And we also have the uh, DJ and uh, precious metal uh, teeth enthusiast Goldie <laughs> as his uh, imaginatively monikered henchman uh, bullion. Uh, what did mm. you think of their uh, showings here big fan of robbie coltrane i thought he was he was woefully underused in goldeneye i i understand he had some he had some scenes cut from goldeneye which i think was a great shame um so i was i was pleased to see him back given a bit more character this time as well he, he seems to have softened a bit since goldeneye and um i made some that he he reminded me a lot of Kevin bay in um from russia with love which was one of those bond sidekick characters that you actually care about mm. during the film so i i was really pleased to see him back and given a slightly bigger role the goldie one is interesting i think around the same time tricky appeared in uh the fifth element and I know they were sort of contemporaries. Um, I'm not a huge dance music fan. Uh, he was better than Tricky was in The Fifth Element. Um, <laughs> his, his attempt at a Russian accent was was dodgy, to say the least, but at least he tried. And there's some very poor Russian accents in this oh. film. Oh, I mean, dreadful. I don't think I don't think Robbie Coltrane's is much to write home about, but uh, compared to uh, Goldie's and uh, even Robert Carlyle's is pretty poor, frankly. 
Robert Carlyle, I think he said it's supposed to be a Serbian accent. I'm sure I, I remember <laughs> that from, from back in the day. And he, he he went a little bit method on it and tried to sort of, you know, had a dialect coach and studied mm. the language and things like that. Um, it's interesting. There's a, there's a, a Russian character at the uh, nuclear bunker who I'm sure is dubbed by Robbie Coltrane as well. Um, he is definitely <laughs> dubbed. And I'm sure it's Robbie Coltrane doing another Russian accent. I feel the need to get to the bottom of that. But um, I know you are a a big Bond fan. We know that. But uh, I also know you're a big music fan as well. So um, I wondered what you made of the uh, theme song to this film, which uh, was performed by uh, Garbage, um, written by uh, David Arnold and uh, Don Black. It must mm. have been doing the lyrics. So uh, yes. a very yeah. weird combination of, of artists there. What did you make of what they came up with? Certainly at the time, I, I was a big fan of Garbage anyway. Obviously, the name meant that there was a lot of Mickey taking uh, at the time. Um, but I, I was a big fan of theirs. So I was just chuffed to bits. And I, re- I really liked what Arnold had done with Tomorrow Never Dies and bringing in a much more up-to-date but respectful sort of uh, uh, sound Big fan of David Arnold, big fan of Garbage. I, I like the song. I think it's I think it's very good. Shirley Manson's got a fantastic voice. I was very happy with that. Were you aware also there was a Scott Walker track that was supposed to be used in the film? I was uh, unaware of that, and I can't imagine what they were thinking. Yeah, it's it's a weird one. It's on the soundtrack album. It's the last track on the album. It was written by um, again by Don Black and David Arnold, and was intended to be used over the end credits. It's a very downbeat sort of smoky jazz tune and it would not have worked at all it's it's a lovely <laughs> tune it's a really really nice tune um I, the title has eluded me only myself to blame it's called um it's on the internet it's it's freely available everywhere you know all reputable video sharing sites but it just would not have worked and for what uh, michael apted apparently uh nixed it and they decided to use the uh, the sort of techno bomb theme at the end instead. Well, that is a Scott Walker. I'm I'm absolutely mm-hmm. floored. I, 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 he's one of the last people in the world I would ever associate with uh, with a with doing a bomb theme. And, yeah. Unless I've I've unless I've really misjudged who he is, what he, what he is as a musician. I, I could sort of imagine him doing a doing a sixties one. I could imagine him singing sort of You Only Live Twice or, mm. you know, something like that. Maybe Thunderball, but I don't know if it was one of it. It was the period where one of his um, sort of occasional revivals, like mm. he's having one at the moment. Or maybe it was just David Arnold was in that period. was like, well, I can work with whoever I want. I want, want to work with Scott Walker, please. Yeah, of course you can, David. Maybe it was one of those. Who knows? The mysteries of the movie business. Well, I reckon it's time we get down to the serious business of talking about the exploding helicopter action. So uh, why don't we take a quick break? Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. Do you like movie podcasts hosted by inebriated people? That's Kai with the cracking voice and Heather's touched by evil. One thinks he's Spider-Man, the other is a ninja. It's the Man I Love Film Podcast. It's the Milkcast. Everybody, I'm Kai, and I'm Heather, and we are the hosts of Milfcast, the Man I Love Films podcast, the unofficial official podcast of ManILoveFilms.com. This is the podcast where we like to talk about what we've been watching, talk about movies, but mainly we just like to drink, be silly, and play a whole bunch of games. So we think every other week you should grab a drink, snuggle up, and let us make sweet love to your ears. Otherwise, we'll make sweet love to your couch. So come and find us on iTunes. Just search for Milfcast. 
We're back and now we're looking at the exploding helicopter action in The World Is Not Enough. Bond heads to a caviar canning factory to pursue a lead on villain Electra King's plans. However, she's tipped off about his presence and sends in two helicopters from her mining operation to rid herself of the meddlesome secret agent. The choppers are equipped with giant rotating blades which hang from the bottom of the aircraft and cut through the buildings where Bond's conducting his interrogation. After a bit of dashing about, Bond uses a remote control to drive his car to where he's temporarily holed up. He gets inside and activates the onboard missile system, targets the first of the helicopters and then takes it out with a missile. Whilst Bond is admiring his handiwork, the second helicopter comes in and chops his car in half. After some further dashing about, Bond opens a gas pipe which shoots a plume of highly flammable vapour into the air. Using a handily placed flare gun, he ignites the gas which causes the second helicopter, which is conveniently hovering above it, to explode. Joe, what did you make of the exploding helicopter action? I think the uh, the choice word that you used there was conveniently. Um, <laughs> the first one is incredibly lazy, using the um, automatic targeting missile handily uh, stored in the massive BMW badge in his steering wheel. Far too reminiscent of uh, Spy Love Me. And then the second one, like you say, he's conveniently hovering over a plume of gas and he blows it up with a flare gun like he did in A View to a Kill. It's seen it all before. It's, um, Deja it, Bond, know, it, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's like a sort of greatest hits package, um, or, or a bad <laughs> cover version rather. And the whole, the whole sequence is, is an utter mess. I mean, the, the action scenes in the film aren't brilliantly directed anyway, but this one, it's, it you've got this ropey set. It looks like a studio set. There, there's very little attempt to sort of disguise that fact. It may have been outside on the back lot, but there doesn't seem to be any logic to the building either the ramps and steps and things seem to just be there for bond to run up and down and you you've got no sense of where he is in relation mm. to the helicopters at all the buzz saws are, are a nice touch i like those that that was something that certainly i'd never seen before in a film apparently they do actually exist so yes it's not yes, something sorry, that uh, they've invented uh, these these devices uh, do actually uh, do actually exist but uh, I, I do agree with you the um, first explosion here with the the rocket from the car very reminiscent of the uh, spy who loved me um, although this time the car uh, that he fires the rocket from isn't underwater so uh, there, there is a slight vari <laughs> slight variation there the first one though is despite the fact it's a sort of similar method of destruction that we've seen before it is is actually a fairly decent explosion it explodes in the air kind of the wreckage falls down to the ground and it seems to hit some oil drums where it explodes again and we get a good explosion um, but that's in kind of stark contrast i felt to the second one which yes just it i don't know what they were doing there I, it seems to be cgi for that one and it's really terrible cgi i would suggest it's it's a model shot that's been modified with cgi mm. Yeah, it it doesn't look good at all. I mean, the 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 when the buzz saws all fly off, that is clearly CGI, and they've tried so hard to match the trajectories of them to the actors as they're running away from them and it really doesn't look good at all it looked like the kind of um it looked like those sort of primitive embarrassing early attempts at uh, 3D yes yeah i mean it just is coming at you yeah <laughs> i don't know why they why they bothered to sort of get really boring and sciencey would would the blades have even all flown off in 20 different directions i, I don't know if that wouldn't they have just sort of fallen off the bottom of the helicopter and 
it's a bad idea and it's badly executed. It's it's a kind of perfect storm of uh, rubbishness. Mm. Right. Well, I can sense the uh, digital timer of destiny slowly counting down to the end of this podcast. So I think it's time to wrap things up. Joe, thanks for coming on the show. Do you want to take a moment to tell people where they can find your stuff on the Internet? No problem at all. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm on Twitter as Joe Scaramanga. I am on Letterboxd as Joe Scaramanga. You can find uh, movie reviews on there. I also have, as you mentioned, pop music. I have a uh, Now blog, nowmusicfanblog.co.uk, where I am slowly reviewing every single Now, that's what I call music album, since 1983. What are you up to at the moment? Uh, The last one I did was 22 and I've also done a complete history of the Christmas Now albums as well, which all sounds frightfully boring, but it's really not. And I'm hoping to go into some of the side projects on that as well, like the Now Dance albums and some of the sort of one-off specials that they've done as well. Well, as always, I'd like to remind you all to check out the Exploding Helicopter website for old school written and witty reviews of films with uh, helicopter explosions in them. You can also find us on Twitter, Tumblr and Facebook. Exploding Helicopter will return, but until then, keep watching the skies for those exploding helicopters. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. You're not retiring anytime soon. Are you? Now pay attention, 007. I've always tried to teach you two things. First, never let them see you bleed. And the second? Always have an escape plan.